0: Good morning again. Good morning. What a day to be together in the house of the Lord, Amen. That's a uh, quite a story. I just had David read for us. Um, but you know what happens when we read the historical books of the Bible, especially the history in the Old Testament? It becomes easy to forget that what we're reading is inspired Scripture. That it's the Word of God through which He reveals Himself to his people. You know, sometimes we read of God's salvation in the distant past and we wonder, well, what does this have to do with me? How does this relate to me today? And it just becomes history for us. It's especially true when history repeats itself in the Bible, which it often does. We've seen this in the books of Samuel so many times, right? Oh, look, Saul's angry again and wants to kill David. Oh, look, David again is hiding in some cave somewhere in Israel. And oh, he had a chance to kill Saul, but you know what? He spared him. Again. And here come the Philistines. I oh, love they're going to battle Israel for like the ninth time in the last three chapters. I, I get it. I get it. Yes, what we read here is history. It's true history. But if our God is sovereign over all of history, and if history at its core is the history of God's salvation of his people, which it is, then everything in this history truly happened for a reason. And there's a reason the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the Bible to record the parts of redemptive history that they did. There is so much that happened with Israel that isn't recorded in the Bible, way more than is. So why did God choose to record this? Why did he choose to record this when it just seems like history is repeating itself again? Well, I'll tell you why. He did it for us. This chapter is recorded for us. The the record of the rebellion of Ammon and Syria was recorded for our sake. Their their strategy and and the the strategy of Joab and Abishai are are recorded for us. So if this is for us, then we should look at this event and say, what does God want me to get out of this? So let's see what God wants to get out of this today. Start out in verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. So it's after this, this is referring to what we saw last week, all the uh, events between David and Mephibosheth. Here we see the kings of the Ammonites dies. Now, why should this matter to us? Or for that matter, why should it matter to David or to Israel? Well, let's go back to chapter 8 for a minute. There we read of all David's victories against all the nations surrounding Israel. We read of the spoils of war that David took through these victories, and we read this in 2 Samuel 8. These being the spoils also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So included in this list of enemies are some more enemies we see today, like the Ammonites. And remember what we saw with those victories when David was going and and winning these battles against the Ammonites, he wasn't only defeating the nation, he was bringing them into the kingdom. Many of these nations became part of the kingdom of Israel politically, but even more importantly, they became part of the kingdom. See, David brought them not just into his kingdom, he was bringing these people into the kingdom of God. And that's why we read of this relationship between David and the king of Ammon. We don't read of a relationship between enemies, do we? Again, 2 Samuel 10. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. That's not how you treat an enemy. That's how you treat a friend. David and Nahash were friends. Nahash understood that David's goal wasn't just military victory for his own sake. It was spiritual victory for those who were brought into the kingdom of God. And now David reaches out to the new king, his son, the son of his friend. He wants to continue this mutually loyal relationship between the kingdoms. But as you know, if you're here and you're over 40, the younger generation always thinks they know better, don't they? You know, keeping things as they've always been sounds so boring to young people. So we read that the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he's honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? See, David extends the olive branch. He says, me and your father were friends. I want to be your friend too. And of course, Hanun's young advisors say, okay, boomer, they don't want to be friends with David. They don't want to be part of the kingdom. Like every generation of young people. And listen, we've all been that generation. Make no mistake. This is about all of us. The young generation are always rebels, usually without a cause or a clue. And we see here they tell King David, they tell the king, no, David doesn't want a relationship with you. He doesn't want to be your friend. He's coming to spy out the land. No, he wants to depose you. He wants you off the throne. So Hanun listens to his friends. And he decides to mistreat David's envoy and basically saying to David, no, I declare myself free from you. But the Ammonites had a problem. They were not a huge military power by this point, and David had already defeated them once before, so what were they going to do? Verse 6, When the Ammonites saw they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites set and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rehob, means house of Rehob, and the Syrians of Zoba, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. This sounds so familiar, doesn't it? Some of these nations are ringing a bell for me. Let's go back to chapter 8 again. We read this in chapter 8. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of Assyrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and Assyrians became servants to David and brought tribute. So the Ammonites, whom David had already subdued and brought into the kingdom. Hire of Assyrians, whom David had already subdued and brought into the kingdom. Where he placed a garrison, by the way. And they begin this rebellion together against David. So now David has to act. Now David has to address this. Verse 7, And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. Joab, the general of David's army, goes to fight this battle with the host of the mighty men. Who are these mighty men? In 2 Samuel chapter 23, we're given a long list of David's mighty men. Go go read it. It's interesting. We're given an account of some of the military exploits of a few of these amazing warriors. Uh, Among them is Abishai, Joab's brother, who we read about here. He he once fought 100 men with just a spear and was victorious. We read about a a mighty man named Uriah the Hittite, a very loyal warrior to David. We'll we'll meet him next week, I think. but if you go through and read that passage about these mighty men and you look at all the amazing things that they did, the fact that Joab and the mighty men and the whole army of Israel is coming against Ammon and Syria is really, really bad news for Ammon and Syria. But the enemy has a strategy. The enemy always has a strategy. And they decide they're going to attack the army of Israel on two fronts. The idea is that they're going to divide the mighty army of Israel and perhaps overpower one of the defensive flanks. It's basically War 101, right? It's what won World War II for for the, the allies. Attack on two fronts. So now Joab has to come up with a counter strategy. This is what we read. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do good what seems good to him. So of strategy is okay. We're going to go meet the enemy head on. We're going to fight this two-front war. And if one defensive flank becomes overpowered, the is going to turn, see the other front, turn and protect the lives of the men of Israel. First and foremost, they would defend each other and Joab says he's good with this plan because he knows it's in God's hands. He is fighting as one of God's people. He knows that he has God on his side. And it doesn't mean earthly victory is guaranteed, right? He doesn't know he's going to win his battle. He's not even guaranteed he'll survive the battle. But Joab doesn't say, hey, Abishai, we can't lose the battle because God's on our side. He doesn't say, hey, God's going to do what's best for me in this situation, so I'm not worried. Now we praise that Yahweh would do what's good for him. What seems good to God, I'll accept that, he says. And that, that kind of conviction alone, brothers and sisters, that's a victory in itself. To I said a few weeks ago, just having that faith to obey is victory. It is here for Joab. He is so confident that God is going to do what's right, what's good for his people, even if it means defeat in this world, or even death in this world. Joab's good with whatever God wants because he knows, he believes with all of his heart that if God does what is right in his eyes, it is better for God's people no matter what. So Joab here, he's courageous. He's eager to enter the battle. And then we see what happens. Joab enters the battle with his confidence, not an earthly victory. His confidence is in God. And we read, so Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Joab, and Abishai, and the mighty men, the whole army of Israel, they enter this battle knowing that the battle belongs to the Lord. They go into it, willing to accept whatever the outcome is. They just want God to do what's right in His eyes. All they can do is what they're called to do: to be obedient. And to enter the battle. And they do that and God gives them victory. And the way it's described, it, it, it's almost like it happens without a shot being fired, so to speak, right? Here's Joab and, and, and his mighty men and his half of the army and they march towards the Syrians. And the Syrians say, nah, and they run the other way. There is the Ammonites. They see their so-called allies running the other way and they say, nah, and, and they turn and they run, literally. And this is often the case. Just showing up for the battle is all God asks. Just showing up for the battle is enough to win it. God will use our willingness. He will use our faith and our obedience. And that alone is enough for him to carry out his will and do what's right in his eyes. It's what he does here. But that's not the end of the story. As is often the case, battles can be won, but the war rages on. Verse 15. When the Assyrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer, hmm, we met him before, set and brought up the Assyrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Assyrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with them. And the Assyrians fled before Israel. And David killed the Assyrians, the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen. And wounded Shobach, the commander of their armies, that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to him. So as the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Another familiar name here, right? This Hadadezer, as we just saw a few minutes ago, he was subdued by David back in chapter 8. Remember, David defeated him, left garrisons there, and, and we're told that he submitted to David. Here, had sees that his army has fled, and now he, he goes for some reinforcements. He calls for his allies from beyond the Euphrates' further north. Now realize, this is not the son of a king David already subdued. It's not the same situation as we saw at the Ammonites, right? This is one of the kings that was supposedly already committed to David. This is one of the kings that was supposedly an already subdued enemy. But here he comes, once again against Israel. So David goes out. He has to come back, David has to have the same battle again because this same enemy was causing the same trouble he had already caused before his initial defeat. So history repeats itself yet again. And the kingdom of Hadadezer submits to David again. They establish peace with David again. They are subject to Israel again. They're right back where they were. But so is David. He had to fight the same battle again just to get back to where he was. The Psalm that I started with this morning, Psalm 21, is believed by many to have been written by David about this uprising and victory for God's people. As you heard him at Psalm, David speaks about the strength of God and how through the victories he's won, he has blessed David. He talks about how God is the one who defeats the enemies of his people. And the middle line of a Psalm, right smack dab in the middle, we see why all of this happens. Psalm 21 7. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through his steadfast love of the Most High, it shall not be moved. This steadfast love is that same chesed love that Pastor Dave spoke about, that faithful, saving love of God. Because David trusted God and God is this kind of loving, God gave him the victory. David believes this loving God in everything that he says and all of his promises so David can live out the faith he has. He can live out that obedience of faith we spoke about. And he says, God keeps giving me victory. Victory after victory after victory. Not just the victory. We're all guaranteed at the end, right? We know. We can rest in that. That is going to happen. But through David's faith, through his trust in God, God gives him victory here in this life. We saw the same with Joab, the commander of the army. He believed God. God, whatever you want, whatever you're going to do, I am going to be obedient. I am going to go into the battle you call me to, God, and do what's good in your eyes, because I know that's what I want to. And we can look back at this and see David and Joab, who lived all those years ago, and say, okay, great, good for them. What does this have to do with us? Like I also said two weeks ago, we may not be engaged in... Military battles or any type of physical battle. Most of us aren't. But we are engaged in a war. Christian soldiers, we have been called to the obedience of faith that requires us to enter into battle. We are in a war against sin. It's a war that's going to rage on until we're finally in the Lord's presence. And if we are not engaging the enemy with a sound strategy, we're going to lose battles. We battle against the world in its ways. You know, the wisdom of the world has determined that we here are enemies of the good. Think about that. This is what the world believes. Because we choose truth. We're an enemy that has to be defeated. So listen, that means if you bear the name Christian, you are in a war whether you like it or not. If this war is not going to end until Christ returns and wins the final victory for us. And in the meantime, if we are not engaging the enemy with a sound strategy, then not only are we going to lose battles, but I want to tell you something, we might even be complicit in the victories the world is winning. We battle against the spiritual powers of darkness. Whether we realize that or not, we are in a real war. That war sometimes determined an open battle, but you know what? More often than not, the enemy is running covert operations to win victory. And he always has a strategy. And if we aren't engaging that enemy with a sound strategy, then we are losing the war and probably don't even know it. So I want to offer four takeaways from this event, this event that is preserved by the Holy Spirit to aid us in the war we're in. First, note that once Nahash dies, his son seeks to overturn David's victory, right? It's the next generation, it's his son that requires Israel to enter back into battle that they had previously won. Realize, the war needs to be renewed with every subsequent generation. I think back to my childhood and going to the church, going to church on Sunday was normal. My own mother, who for all practical purposes is an atheist, made my sister and I go to church until we were teenagers. Go back a generation to my parents when they were kids, kid, and there was something almost scandalous about not being part of a church, while there was nothing scandalous about public prayer. Think about that. My, oh, things have changed. Now, listen, that doesn't mean there were more Christians then. That's not what I'm saying. But you can see in this war against the world, against the enemy, things were different. Going to church, availability of the truth of God was much more the norm. But that truth now, that truth is being snubbed out by the enemy little by little. And that means the war needs to be renewed in this generation. We, the church, has to take a step of faith and confidently enter into battle knowing God can and will use our obedience, no matter what it means for us, for the good of his people. In practice, this means we all have a responsibility to the generations that come after us, to the younger generations. You know, last week, of all the people that were here for Sunday service, 11% of them were children down in Children's Church. 12% of them were youth group kids. Another 12% were part of our young adult group. That's 35% of the people who were here last week are part of these younger generations. In fact, over the last six months, 38%, listen, 38% of the people that have walked through those doors on a Sunday morning have been 25 or under. There is a battle going on for these young people. Are you in the battle? Don't think, well, that's their parents' problem. They need the generations before them to fight for them. Because imagine everyone in the church coming into battle for these young people against the enemy. Just like Joab and his mighty men and the army of God's people, we would be arrayed against the enemy and he would turn tail and run. The battle will be won. So, how do we do that? How do we enter into the battle? Look, I, sometimes we can talk so abstractly as Christians, can't we? Like, we're in spiritual warfare, we're in a fight against sin. And too often we leave it at that and don't really talk about what that means for us in our situation. Let me tell you how to enter this battle. Ready? Take an interest in someone younger than you in this church. Be an ally to the younger generation in this church. And that means, look, even if you're 60... And you want to take a 40-year-old under your wing? That's great because you'll be equipping them for the battle, showing them how to take a 20-year-old under their wing who can then take one of the children of this church under their wing and together we can all fight this battle and get to know Jesus Christ better. I can remember as a young 41-year-old all those years ago (laughs) walking into this church saying, I need to find older men to speak into my life. I need to find, oh, I'm stagnant. It's part of the reason our our, our last church closed. I need older men, more mature men to help me in my walk, and thank God he answered that prayer. People like Joe and David and Dave and Dean Temple and Ed Banghart, men who took an interest in me, men who took their responsibility to me seriously and have such a huge role in my life and my maturity and my ministry. And this is exactly what the Bible calls us to, isn't it? Paul tells Titus to train the older men to teach the younger men how to live out the gospel, to teach older women how to teach the younger women how to live out the gospel. This is how Titus is going to be able to establish a church that could sustain itself against the attacks of the enemy. So no matter your age, listen, you need to make sure you have a mutually loyal relationship with people of the next generations, because that's how we battle for them. Have faith, be obedient, and enter the battle. Second, though in the case of Ammon, it was that next generation that battle had to be had. We see something different in the case of Hadadezer and his army, right? This was the same exact enemy David defeated two chapters ago, and here he was again, the same enemy, Causing the same trouble, like I said. And David has to enter back into the battle with the enemy he already thought he defeated just to get back to where he was. How often does the same thing happen for us? We win battles against sin, against the world, against the powers of darkness. Never be so foolish as to count the enemy out. Our enemies do not stay defeated if we are not very careful, and very intentional. And think about it. In chapter 8, we were told David took everything from Hadadez. Remember, we saw he took those shields. He took all of his defenses. He left a garrison there to keep his eye on them. What happened? What happened? Did the garrison just let the guard down? Did they just not realize the enemy was rebuilding their defenses? Did they leave their post and miss The enemy planning another attack? Did they stop caring? Just assume the enemy would stay defeated? Did they maybe get way too comfortable living in Syria and began to grow accustomed to living just like the enemy among whom they lived? Well, as part of a church, you know, the garrison that the Lord Jesus has left here in this world, Why do we wonder why enemies we thought were defeated keep on coming back? Whether it's a sin you thought you had beaten, but then there's that same temptation again. I have to fight this battle all over again now. Whether it's a slow, sometimes imperceptibly slow, drift away from the things you know you should be doing, and then inevitably you stop doing them and something else fills that vacuum. And then you want to get back in the good habits and say, how am I here having to fight this battle all over again? Or maybe we don't even realize that the enemy is regrouped until we fall into sin. Maybe even a habit of sin. Maybe we don't realize the enemy did not stay defeated until the line between us and the enemies among whom we live is so blurred that there's no perceivable difference. Maybe. Like so many of us, you've experienced defeat at the hands of a once defeated enemy more times than you'd like to admit. All I'm going to do is offer you the advice. I offer this advice to many Christians who come seeking counsel about longstanding issues they're facing. We can talk about it all we want, but if you don't change something, don't expect anything to change. My father served three tours in the Vietnam War. He actually volunteered for the Marine Corps to go. He tells a story. During his second tour there, there was a young officer that came in and took control of his platoon. This was a kid who went through the training program they had for officers, came in as a first lieutenant. He had been in country less than two months and never actually seen any action. My father was only a corporal at the time. And this young officer led the platoon to an area where there was suspected enemy activity. They made camp for the night, and the next day they did a sweep of the area. father said they found some evidence of enemy activity, but didn't find any of the enemy to engage with. So they did a full circle around the area. It took all day. When they got back to where they started, the lieutenant said, okay, let's make camp here again. My father and a lot of the other guys in the platoon, very outranked said, heck no, we are not staying in the same spot again. See, my father said, in war, if you establish a pattern like that, the enemy sees it, learns it, and uses it against you. So after an argument, which actually resulted in my father being brought up on charges that were immediately dismissed, he, the entire platoon, And the reluctant first lieutenant went miles away to make camp. See, the men who actually spent time battling the enemy knew that if you keep doing the same thing over and over, you are giving the enemy an advantage, he will get the drop on you. Well, we, brothers and sisters, we are foot soldiers in this war God has us fighting. We are in the thick of the battle. Yet we find ourselves far too often going in a big circle. We find ourselves, far too often, so willing to make camp right where we always do. If we do that, we can't be surprised when the enemy gets the drop on us. We can't be surprised if there are even disastrous results. And we lament, oh, here's history repeating itself, again. I fall into that same temptation, again. I found myself living like the world, again. I see myself not doing all the things God calls me to do again. And maybe we really want to want to make a change. But more often than we'd like to admit, we just make the big circle again and camp right where we always do. But if we don't change anything, nothing's going to change. Listen, we can't assume the enemy is going to stay defeated. The enemy will not stay defeated. We need to break the cycle. that keeps getting us right back to where we've been. We need to recognize the enemy we fight. We need, like my father's platoon, to make a move away from what we were used to doing. So how do we do that? Well, you have a choice in this. See, we can be like that young officer. We can learn all about the battle, right? We can know what the Bible says. We can come here and hear the Sunday sermon and know in our heads everything we think God wants us to know about living the Christian life. But if we don't choose to get into the battle, to step down into the trenches, the enemy is going to win. I can promise you, a Bible reading plan and Sunday morning worship is not enough. You need those things, okay? You need to know what the Bible says. You need to hear the sermons. You need to be part of the church. You need to be part of Sunday morning worship. We need to be intentional in doing more. So I'm going to ask you this morning what else will you start doing? Right now, what will you commit to doing to take a step towards Christ? I mean, maybe you're stuck in a cycle of sin. Right? Maybe you thought you had the pornography battle won, but the enemy rears its ugly head again. Do something. Repent, and get rid of your computer if you have to. I am not kidding. Or get yourself someone you can be accountable to. I volunteer. I'll check your search history in your phone once a week. You can do the same for me. Maybe you've just drifted. Maybe you thought you had that habit of being like the world when you're with the world beat, but then the enemy renews his attack and there you are, being just like everybody else. Do something. Repent. And maybe avoid the friend group that tempts you to sin. Or maybe tell them, your friends, whether they believe the same things you do or not, tell your friends where your temptations lie and ask them not to do it. Or maybe invite a Christian brother or sister into the friend group and be accountable to each other. Do something. Maybe you've just gotten comfortable. Maybe you you haven't challenged yourself in a number of years to do more for Christ. Look, it's easy to just do the same things we've been doing that we're comfortable with, even if they're good habits. We get thinking, oh, my established habits are enough to grow in Christ. I'm doing enough I'm sure David thought taking Hadadez's shields and leaving a garrison was quite enough. But I challenge you to get out of your comfort zone. Don't stay camped where you are. Get marching. Get marching. For all of us, and I include me in this, let's do more. Let's do more for Christ, even if you're already serving and you're part of a community group, you come to prayer group every week, you come every Sunday morning, I encourage you, do something else. Step closer to Christ. Because listen, if you can rationalize to yourself, nah, Lee, I do enough for Jesus. Come see me after, please. Please. Because <laughs> we can think everything is fine. We can think the way we've been doing things is just good enough, but the battle isn't over. The enemy still has a strategy. He is still working. Have faith. Be obedient. Enter the battle. Third, note the strategy of Joab. He says to his brother, if the enemy begins to overpower you, I'll come help you. If he begins to overpower me, come help me. See, Joab knew. He never entered into war alone. Don't fight that battle alone. You don't have to. Look, I've said so many times, Christianity is not a religion for individuals. I know the world has convinced us that so much, almost everything, is about me. So that even in the church, my faith is a personal matter, right? But let me tell you, no matter how some modern evangelicals want to spin it, Jesus Christ is not your personal Lord and Savior. See, as Christians, we have a wonderful responsibility and an awesome privilege each other. And while we might all accept that in the abstract, it's not enough to fight the battle. When the enemy is too strong for your brother or sister, you need to come to their side. Whatever it takes. But the enemy is too strong for you. You need to call on your brothers and sisters in Christ to come to your side. Don't try to live out the gospel as a solo project. It can't be done. It can't be done. And don't fight alone if you want to win the battle. This is why the Bible, over and over again, always talks about the us, the you, plural of the church. How we're to share everything we have with each other. How we're to confess our sins to each other. Without embarrassment or pride, we should be able to come to our family in Christ and ask for whatever we need. Don't live like the enemy among whom we walk. The world says, it's all about you. At the same time, the world says, you don't need anyone, you know what? You can do it. Do anything you want to. The other world loves to build up the underdog. The only thing they like more is to tear him down when he's at the top. That's not how we're called to live. It's sad. This happens in some churches. That's not supposed to be us. If we live like the world, we are going to lose battle after battle. So I encourage you, share your burdens with each other when you're weak. Carry each other's burdens when you're strong. Give, expecting nothing in return. Stand in front of your brother when the enemy attacks and fight the battle he can't win on his own. Be courageous like Joab. Be courageous for the sake of your people. And may the Lord do what's good to him. And if you agree that this is what we should be doing in the church, then that's good. Then we understand that our faith, that our walk, isn't just about us. It's not just about me, what I do, how I live out the gospel, how I believe and obey. What each of us does affects everyone else who's in the battle with us. And this is why. As a Christian, listen to me, you cannot live as if your choices in life are just about you, because they're not. They're not. I'll make this simple. Ready? Man, are you married? Well, when you decide to stay home on a Sunday morning because you're too tired, you haven't wronged me. You haven't wronged the pastor. You haven't wronged the church in some abstract sense. You've wronged your wife. Parents, if you do not model living out the obedience of faith for your children, you haven't robbed yourself of a blessing. You've robbed them. And if any of us fail to step up and help any of our brothers and sisters when they are fighting the battle, then we are not, we are not what God has called us to be. So that means if you give in to temptation when it comes over and over again and you drift into bad habits and you get away from doing what you know God calls all of us to do, you haven't just taken a step back in your walk. And you haven't just sinned against God. You've lost ground in the war. We're fighting together. We have responsibility to each other. Let's show up for the battle. Because if we all show up, the enemy will flee. Have faith, be obedient, and enter the battle. Finally, and you may be thinking mercifully, I want us to notice what this passage doesn't say. I receive it, David again defeats the Ammonites. He again defeats Syria. He again subdues Hadadezer. What we don't read here, is what we read multiple times in chapter eight, like what we read in verse fourteen. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. It doesn't say that in chapter ten. It's nonetheless true. It is God who wins these victories for David. It doesn't say it plainly, but this is very much the case. And this is kind of how it works with us, right? So we can come here on Sunday morning and we can hear all about God's goodness and how it's God that fights our battles and brings us the victory and we fly high on Sundays sometimes, right? We're on the front lines again the rest of the week. Do you remember that? Even when it's not right there being spoken to us, even when it's not right there before our eyes, do we remember the truth? When we're tempted to sin? When we're tempted to live like the world? Do we remember that the battle belongs to God? Do we remember that God is only ever good no matter what happens on this side of heaven? We need to, because if we want victory over our sin, over the powers of darkness, we cannot forget who the battle belongs to. We need to remember in whose strength we stand that we need to seek him. We need to remember what he has done to win us our victory and trust him for victory in all our battles. As I said, my father volunteered for the Marines in 67. And if you were to ask him, he would say, I-, I just felt compelled to fight for my country. But I remember when he told me the real reason. its Because his brother, a year younger, had gotten drafted. And he couldn't send both brothers to war. And my uncle, God rest his soul, he was a screw up. My father knew that left to himself, if he went over, he was going to die. So my father chose to go in his place. It's amazing, isn't it? Don't forget, it's even more amazing what Christ did for you. Left to ourselves, (laughs) we were headed for death. So he came as one of us. He put himself into the battle we couldn't win. And for our sake, he defeated sin and he defeated death and defeated the powers of darkness by going to death in our place. At the cross, the war was won. He did it. But until he returns, brothers and sisters, the battle rages on. And we need him to keep winning the battle for us. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul talks about our battle. I know we all know the armor of God passage, right? But we always seem to skip right to the part about the armor, the breastplate and the helmet and the sword and what are all these things. Don't miss what Paul says. Ephesians 6.10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. See, we stand in the strength and the power of our God. And it is his armor that we wear into battle. That's how we're strong. It's the only way to be strong. Let's not make this abstract. What does it mean to stand in the strength of God to fight the battle? Because look, we tend to do the whole let go and let God thing. Oh, just give it to God, brother. You know what that doesn't mean? It doesn't mean, okay, I'll just leave it to God and do absolutely nothing on my own. But Bible doesn't saying just sit there and do nothing. No, we need to choose to enter the battle in the strength of our God. We need to choose to value truth above worldly peace. Stand up for truth, even at the cost of peace, because compromising truth is defeat. Obey God by living righteous and holy lives through faith, deciding, I believe, like Joab, I believe God enough to obey him and enter the battle. It means growing in holiness. Intentionally seeking God. Let the Holy Spirit work this ongoing salvation in us through the word and prayer. It means staying vigilant, not getting comfortable. It means never believing we have done enough. It means fighting all the saints together, side by side, because we know the war rages on. It means coming to Christ. With our feeble and empty hands and saying, God, fill them with whatever you will. Do what seems good to you. Fighting the battle means making a choice to fight for the next generation, to make a change even if it's just one thing to move closer to Christ. Christ. To lift up our family in Christ, to defend each other in this battle. This is how we choose Christ. This is how we stand in the strength of God. And this is how we go from an abstract faith to a faith that takes action, that fights the battle all for the glory of God. Have faith. Be obedient. Enter the battle. God will give us victory. Let's pray. Begin by praying the words of Psalm 20, also written about this event. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings with regard and favor your burnt sacrifices, Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. In the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right arm. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of Yahweh our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Oh, Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Good and gracious God, we call on you this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that you by your spirit have preserved for us all we need to know you, to draw close to you, Lord. But God, we are weak. We are too eager to be comfortable. I know I am. We too easily let our guard down. We too easily get distracted by the things of the world, Lord, and find ourselves living like the enemies among whom we live. So God, we come to you today. Come to you with only our faith, Lord. And with our empty hands of faith, God, we ask you to fill us. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Give us courage to enter into the battle. Let us take the responsibility we have to each other oh so seriously, God. Let us look to the example of Christ, Lord, who stepped down to get in the front line, to get between us and the enemy, between us and death, Lord. Help us love each other like that. Help us stand up for the next generation, Lord, and tell the world and tell Satan you will not have them. Help us, God, to lose our Western pride and come to each other when we're in need, Lord, knowing that you will supply our need through our family here. Help us, Lord. Help us to encourage one another. Help us, God, to take that next step. Whatever it is you have, Lord, to be different for everyone. Whatever you have for us to do next, Lord, give us determination, Lord. Help us to be intentional in saying, I will do this to serve my Lord. I will do this for the sake of the kingdom. I will do this for the sake of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, work in us. We stand this morning... Weak, but in the strength of your might, God. And we ask, Lord, place your armor on us that we may enter into battle, Lord, knowing that the ultimate victory is won, God. Give us faith to believe that, Lord, and help us to be obedient, to fight the battles in the here and now, Lord. Help us to fight your way by your means, God, that you may be glorified through us, may be glorified in this church, and may be glorified in this world, God. We submit this to you. We praise you for who you are. We thank you for all that you have done and all you are yet to do, God. Hallelujah to you, our God, our Savior. We bow before you, Lord. And we say to you, no matter what, Yahweh God, do what is good in your sight. Amen. Just have your way in us. Amen. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.